0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of the blackest questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic Black fist and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a Black bonus round at the end just for fun. And I like to call it Black Lightning. So our guest for this episode is food editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer and regional chair of the world's 50 Best Restaurants, Jamila Robinson. Jamila leads a team of reporters and directs its multi-platform food content franchise. Jamila was also senior editor for Features at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where she led its Features and Entertainment team. Jamila is the chair of the James Beard Foundation Journalism Committee, super exciting, which organizes the highest honors in food media. She also serves as the coach and mentor for the JBF Fellowship Program. Jamila is an idea person, an avid traveler, and in her free time, coaches figures, Skating and her love language is pie. Jamila, thank you so much for joining the Blackest Questions. I am so excited to have you here.
2: Dr. Greer, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Love talking about a little bit of Black stuff. So great to be here.
1: We're going to talk about Black folks. We're going to talk about food. First things first, our listeners know that I am not really a sweets person. I like salad for dessert, but I do make a mean sweet potato pie. And I had Mike Twitty. On the Blackest Questions, Chef Michael Twitty. And we talked about pie and so many other things. And I got so many uh, listeners DMing and emailing saying, Can I get your grandmother's sweet potato pie recipe? And I asked my cousins, and they said, Absolutely not. That is in the family. What's your stance on sharing recipes?
2: Oh, I think you should share the recipes. Okay. Recipes are a part of our canon, mm-hmm. it's a kind of storytelling. And, you know, you'll see people on Twitter and on Instagram say, oh, we're losing recipes. But what I think what happens if we don't share recipes, we lose our family's stories. Mm -hmm. You can't get my grandmother's sweet potato pie recipe without talking to her first. So you're going to hear about her life, her story. And that's why we share recipes. It's not just adding a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of nutmeg. It is about the relationships and how we talk to each other and how we share. So definitely share your family's recipes write them down so if the love language is pie then what's your favorite pie um lemon tart a lemon tart okay. lemon meringue is my absolute favorite pie It's the first thing I remember learning how to make it's how it was communicating with my grandmother her trying to keep me quiet because I talked too much and no. so she would give me an egg white and um, a quarter cup of sugar. And she would give me a whisk and say, count to 150. And I had to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, two, two, three, 10, And then I have, when I got to 150, I had to switch arms. And that's how we got meringue. Um, so are you ready
1: to play the Blackest Questions? I can, black, black. I can tell you're about to kill it. I feel it, I feel it. Question number one, known as one of the greatest composers of our time, this American composer, pianist and organist was the first African American to win the Pulitzer Prize for Music in 1996. Who is he?
2: Pianist, organist. Oh, I only have 10 seconds to do this, don't I don't I? I was gonna say Quincy Jones, but I
1: don't think that's right. Ooh, that's a really great guess. The answer, that's a really solid guess. The answer is George Theophilus Walker. so Walker. Walker. So, for a number of years, he toured extensively in the United States and abroad as an accomplished pianist. He then went on to hold teaching posts at various institutions, including Smith College, which is where I held a fellowship, University of Colorado Boulder, and Rutgers in Jersey, shout out to Jersey. Um, The number of influences can be heard of in his music, including the surrealism of Schoenberg, the rhythmic complexities of Stravinsky, the colorful orchestrations of Debussy and Ravel, and the Black folk idioms of his own heritage. And in 1996, after decades-long decorated career, Walker became the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize in Music for his work, Lilacs. So I was told by my producers that you studied classical music, and you also mentioned Ravel is one of your favorite composers. So how did you come to love classical music? We've got pie baking, we've got classical music, we're all over the place, and I love it.
2: Well, um, I started playing the violin when I was five or six years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I come from a family of musicians. Everybody played music, either played the piano or played violin. My Brothers play trumpet and violin, and I—it's um, one of the first things that I fell in love with. Was playing the violin. I love the way that it made me feel to play mm-hmm. music and to have that develop an ear. And I um, mean, music is is universal. Um, And I always found an extraordinary amount of joy in, in playing music and playing the violin. I tell people all the time I didn't play sports as a kid. I played in symphonies. And it sort of guides how I work with people, sort of taking the competition out of A lot of the work that we do in putting in the collaboration because you have to work. You have to have a conductor who's going to be able to bring out the best in the strings and the Mm -hmm. best in the bassoon and the best in the horns. Um, In high school, I played in a quartet uh, and played in a lot of museums and um, and did a lot of events, a lot of weddings, Um, and it still brings me an extraordinary amount of joy. I love Ravel. Valero. Um, Ravel's one of my favorite composers. Um, So yes, it's too bad that I missed that question because of course it's George Walker, but.
1: Right. Did I call him Ravel? What, this is my, you know, my brain freeze, Ravel. So here's a question though, because I love, I love Mozart. Mozart is my favorite. You know, I just, I write a lot to Mozart. It sounds like though, you're saying that being part of an orchestra in many ways is about being part of a team the way some people have, have thought about sports. I always think about folks from Detroit. Everyone I met meet from Detroit plays some sort of instrument and has some sort of musical uh foundation. It's almost like, you know, that the area in Virginia where like Missy and Timberland and Genuine are from. My Detroit friends, I'm like, does everyone have a musical bone in their body?
2: We all went to Cast Tech, CT fired up. Yeah. Uh, um uh, you know, we had a symphony that that was. Um, extraordinary, um, you know, great musicians, um, musicians who had were uh, alumni who played in the Detroit Symphony who would come back and give masterclasses. I played in the Detroit Symphony Civic Orchestra um, with some really important uh, musicians and, you know, in small town. Mm -hmm. And when you think about (laughs) Motown, um, that background, I was listening to The Wiz the other day, and there's part of the Emerald City sequence that is all strings. And da-da-da, da-da-da-da, and the strings are going da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it it is so glorious to hear that. And Mm -hmm. and I think that we should think about classical music in contemporary terms. Oh, absolutely. Hip-hop is the most important and most... um, uh, most important musical genre. And so a lot of orchestras are looking at how to um, arrange hip hop because it has so many notes and it's so complex and it's so interesting. And so I find, I find classical music, that foundation to be so important in terms of helping to ground um, understanding, you know, Ravel, uh, play jazz. And, um, and and that was what he was inspired by. He was inspired by all the Black musicians who were playing in France and, and learned a lot about how to, uh, so that is a guiding point of a lot of his music. And I find that to be really compelling to see how our history is infused, especially in uh, 20th century music. And you see uh, you know, our influence from being in other parts of the world.
1: Absolutely. You know, we we've had Terrence Blanchard on, who's a friend of uh, the Griot, and he talked a lot about just what you're saying, this link between classical music and orchestral music to jazz, to hip hop and so many other forms. Now, tell us, though, how you made this transition from the orchestra to the kitchens. Or or is it a seamless transition?
2: Um, well, uh, see, what ha- happened was... <laughs> what it was, was... <laughs> um, I've always loved being in the kitchen. Um, my mother is not somebody who's... Everybody talks about, oh, my mother made the best. And yeah, that's not my mom. My mom was not that person. She was more like you know, biscuits, oh, I'm not, I'm not making biscuits, you know, you pop them open with the back of the spoon and they explode, you know, that's how we got biscuits in our house. Um, but I was always really fascinated with cooking. And the most interesting thing for me, I, being a journalist, I should say it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. I wanted to write about classical music. And that was sort of my plan. I wanted to be a classical music critic. And um, in in my first uh, in, uh, apprenticeship at the Detroit Free Press, um, they put me in pop music. Um, but and in my first internship, I had to um, I had to I was a, a graphic designer, and I had to design the um, food pages. And I as I read all of the stories, I was so fascinated by how much the food writers got out of people. All of the interesting details you would find, mm. you would find these fascinating ideas coming out in food because food like music is universal. And I found that, Oh, I can wait a minute. I really, really love to cook. I really love making my own cakes and trying to figure out how my grandmother made X, Y, or Z. Um, and I can also write these recipes. You have to write them out. So I started writing recipes of things that I really enjoyed. I check out Books from the library, and I make these little twists on them. One of the things you have to do when you work on food sections is you have to style all of the recipes, and so you have to have a really good understanding of how each recipe works, and then you have to photograph it, make sure it looks beautiful. You have to test it to see if it comes out. Does it look like the picture? Um, and because I have this kind of artsy-ish background, um, I started doing a lot of that, a lot more styling. And then I started asking questions about the food. And that was, that became such an interesting way to talk to people. I love going into a room with people I don't know and then asking them how their family cooked rice. Mm. Cause you'll find out if it was jollof or if it was a tadig, like a lot of people that I grew up around in Michigan, like a lot of Middle Easterners, um, like that crispy rice on the bottom. Right. That's right. I, or if it was like ricearoni like we had in my house um because that tells you a story about women working about mm-hmm. um, feminism um about um, making different choices about how you spend your time. My mother was not somebody who wanted to spend her time in the kitchen. Right. And um, and and you find out a lot of things about people. And it's the last thing. Food is the last thing we move. We lose when we move to a different place. We are calling our parents and asking, "How did you make those chicken and noodle? How did you make that chicken and noodle dish? How did you make that jowl of rice? What kind of spices did you use?" And you find out these stories about them. So that was a lot of the transition. And then just. Discovering that because food is is universal, it touches every sector of what we do in journalism. Whether that is politics or the economy, immigration, um, entertainment, you can't talk about sports without talking about food. You can't talk about immigration without talking about food, and you can't talk about restaurants without talking about the economy. That's right. So, um, and and so I find, found that to be the the greatest pathway for deeper engagement. Um, and it just helps me do my job better um, as newspapers and other media organizations are going through this transition, this digital transformation. Well, food is such an easy, um, it's like a, the most direct pathway to transformation because everybody has to do it, everybody right. has to experience it, and you can frame food in so So many many
1: different directions okay i'm fascinated by this i'm fascinated by you uh we're gonna take a quick commercial break we're playing the blackest questions with jamila robinson and we'll be right back
0: the griot black podcast network is here and it's everything you've been waiting for news talk entertainment sports and today's issues all from the black perspective Ready for real talk and black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the GRIO Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the GRIO mobile app and tune in everywhere. Great podcasts are heard.
1: Okay, Jamila, we are back playing the Blackest Questions. Are you ready for question number two? I'm going to circle back at some point because I'm a rice connoisseur, so we're going to get to the bottom of more of this rice conversation. But in the meantime, in between time, are you ready for question number two? Let's go. Okay. Considered one of the most influential contemporary American artists, she rewrote the rules of image making by creating work that insists on the worth of Black women, both in art and in life, working in text, fabric, audio, digital images, installation videos, and is best known for her photography. Who is she?
2: Oh, I thought that was going in a different direction.
1: That's what we do in the Black square.
2: Oh gosh, I can see her artwork. Um, Oh, I'm gonna call her name. Honeycut, honey. Cut? honey... Oh. It's Carrie
1: Mae Weems.
2: Carrie Mae Weems. Oh, I don't know.
1: So Carrie Mae Weems has investigated family relationships, cultural identity, sexism, class, political systems, and the consequences of power. Determined as ever to enter the picture both literally and metaphorically, Weems has sustained an ongoing dialogue within contemporary discourse for over 30 years. And in 2013, she received the MacArthur Genius Grant, as well as the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation's Lifetime Achievement Award. She also received the BET Honors Visual Artist Award, the Lucy Award for Fine Art Photography, and so many other awards, and it was one of four artists honored at the Guggenheim's 2014 International Gala. So Carrie Mae Weems is just one of my inspirations for contemporary uh, art and obviously photography. Um, so we've got food, we've got music. So naturally I got to ask you about art. Who is your favorite contemporary artist, and how much do you see food, art and music blending in as one in the work you do and also in, in just your, your free time.
2: Oh my gosh. I am in love with Amy Sherald. Mm, Yeah. Um, yeah. Really. And I, her imagery, and and that's where I thought you were going.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, her imagery, her portraiture, I find so breathtaking and compelling. Um, there are a couple of pieces, one that I love called Miss Everything, and there it's a woman in a black pillbox hat. And I'm doing a little shimmy right now because that's how I think of her. So she's got this red pillbox hat and she's got her coffee cup in. I love the way that Amy Sherall plays with these ideas and images of contemporary, of, especially of young Black women. Mm-hmm. She has a new painting um, called As She Sees It. And I, the first time I, I saw it, I thought it was a, a portrait. <laughs> um, I wear a lot of bright colors. I um, I love prints. And there's this, she's, there's this picture of this woman who where she's wearing her hair like mine. She has on a leopard coat, which is a reference to another painting. And she's got on these bright orange pants. And I, I thought, well, when did I sit for a portrait? Right. <laughs> is this me? Um, <laughs> and, and, and that I think is something that art should do for you. You should be mm-hmm. able to see yourself and be inspired by it. And and I, every time I see an Amy Chirral, um painting, whether it is of her Brianna Taylor, or if it's um, the 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 Bathers, um, I feel so connected to that imagery because those are all women, Black women that I, I know in some way. There's a new painting of of. T- of a man on a there he's like on a motorcycle and his and he's popping a wheeling and it reminds me of my dad's uh, motorcycle club the hellraisers um it's like all of these images and these reference points mm-hmm. that in our experience and she has given us this um in these very contemporary terms and and that I find to be so beautiful and so inspiring and so colorful. Um, I love the way she brings people to life um, and it just excites me.
1: We're gonna take a quick commercial break. I am talking to Jamila Robinson. We're finding out so much. We've got art, we've got food, we've got music and we have a few more things coming down the pike. Stay tuned. The Griot
0: Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. Witty, honest, entertaining. Introducing Dear Culture with Panama Jackson on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio mobile app for all the Black culture debates you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard.
1: We're back and we're playing the Blackest Questions uh, with Jamila Robinson. Jamila, are you ready for question
2: number three? I'm going to try number three.
1: Okay. See, and the, the beauty of the Blackest Questions, Jamila, is listen, we do our best but it's not all about getting them, you know, 100%. It's about learning about black history as american history. That's my argument uh on this podcast that everyone should know these things, right? Not just black folks, but everyone should know about all the great folks uh black people who have contributed to art, music, culture, society, politics, you name it. So, question number 3. Many biographical accounts credit this chef's time with former President Lyndon Johnson's family, as inspiring him to sign the famous Civil Rights Act. Due to traveling together on a trip back to Washington, the chef and the Johnsons found they couldn't eat together, use the restroom, or find shelter at the same facilities because the chef was Black. What was the chef's name?
2: Oh my gosh, I should know this chef's name and I can see his face and I cannot recall his name right now, but he was the chef... Adrian Miller has written about this chef. Um, He was uh, in the White House for many, many years. And I cannot call his name. Help me out with his name, Dr. Greer.
1: So you're thinking of a different chef because the chef we are thinking about is Zephyr Wright, who was born in Texas in 1914, studying home economics in college. She did more than simply obtain an education. She was one of Wiley University's best students, being so highly recognized that she was recommended by the university president to work for then representative Lyndon Johnson's family as a chef in 1942. And as our listeners know, LBJ is my favorite president. We know he's from the great state of Texas. And so according to the first lady, Wright was an expert at spoon bread, homemade ice cream, and monumental Sunday breakfasts of deer sausage, home-cured bacon, popovers, grits, scrambled eggs, homemade peach preserves, and coffee. And so the Pedernales River, uh, I'm sure our our um our listeners will will correct me on the the pronunciation. Pedernales River a uh, chili recipe. So the Pedernales River chili recipe was so popular it was printed on cards and passed out to White House visitors. And Zephyr Wright also held the pen that endorsed the historic Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so, Jamila, I was just telling my students, you know, when a president signs a bill. Uh, into law, you know, when when Congress brings the president a bill and I ask my students, why does the president have 10 to 20 pens right in front of him? And they rightly guessed, oh, so he can give them out to the different people who helped pass that legislation, right? So he signs a little bit with each pen. And so the fact that Zephyr Wright had one of those pens with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, when we know that so many people, especially so many African-Americans contributed to the passage of the Civil Rights Act, that just warmed my heart. And I'm so excited to learn more about who she was. So had you heard of her before? It gives
2: me chills. I haven't heard of her. And that gives me that gives me chills because we know so much about so many of the black chefs that worked in the White House kitchens and worked for so much of the congressional staff and actually contributed to the um to the canon, whether that was um James Hemmings or all the others, but Zephyr Wright is a name that I don't know. And I, that story just gives me um It's, I can feel it in my soul.
1: Yes, and as a political scientist, I feel like I I wanna learn more. This is, you know, she's basically the confluence of Jamila and Chrissy talking in this food world and political world, because imagine what she had seen and the conversations I'm sure she had with the president. As you said, in the kitchen, as we learn about these recipes, it's all about conversations and learning. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Blackest Questions. I'm so sure that there were some conversations had between the president and Zephyr Wright uh, in the in the the 20 some odd years between that incident uh, of them traveling and the passage of the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act.
2: And imagine imagine the conversation around I feed you, I, I feed you, which is feeding somebody is the greatest act of love. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I feed you, but I can't sit next to you as I feed you. And feed me the food that I prepared. So I can imagine this is why it's giving me me chills about the conversations that must have ha- been had, and the progress that is required and the humanity that is that is necessary to make that kind of change. I have chills,, so i want to I want to talk to you about that because I
1: love the way you approach food writing. I think a lot of our listeners, you know, many of us have never met a food writer, right? It's it's not, especially a Black food writer, let me be specific, um, because I know that, you know, this is not a field that a, a lot of Black people are in. And so I want to talk a little bit more though about your journey, and maybe you can give some advice. You know, we probably have listeners out here who are now fascinated, or maybe they've been thinking about, you know, taking this passion and this knowledge they have about food and transitioning into a world that you're in. So, What advice would you give our listeners into how they can help, you can help them shape a career in food journalism? Like, what's a path? Your path was slightly different. You came from the music world. But can you give our listeners any tips or advice into sort of breaking into a world that seems a little closed off, to be quite honest?
2: Well, it's so strange because um, as much as we like to eat, Mm -hmm. there are only a handful of black food writers. Mm-hmm. Um and and black folks
1: and food in this country in particular in this country has such a long rich history of foundation.
2: I'm one of the few black food editors. I can name the other as Don Davis at Bon Appétit, Nikita, Nikita Richardson at the New York Times, Tony Tipton Martin who was um essentially she is the um she is the person on which my I stand. She was the first Black food editor. I was the second. There aren't that many of us. Our stories about food, people don't ask us about our food. They eat it, but they don't ask us about it. So I think for people who are going into journalism or thinking or want to be writers, food is such an important pathway because you can start to ask all of these questions about whatever topic you're in, whatever topic you're interested in. If you're interested in politics, well, food politics and policy, the most important story over the last couple of years was food stories, restaurants, PPP loans, how the economy stayed stable, was essentially how COVID was passed along. Those are all food stories. Everything is a food story. Who baked that bread? Um, who built that restaurant, why aren't people being, uh, why aren't black restaurants getting the same amount of investment? Mm-hmm. So I would, so one of the things that I like to do when I work with students is to give them a food story assignment. Whatever it is that they're interested in, I give them a food story. And I also like for people to go and write an essay about something that they love to eat. What is the thing that bring? what food brings you the most joy? What is your food memory? And you will always you will inevitably end up with a story about a mother, a grandmother, a parent, a dad. Um, but you will start to see all of the connections and you will see the humanity in people. Food is so it's essential to every life form, but it is essential to our humanity. And when I think about the civil rights movement of I you don't want me to sit down and eat. Mm-hmm the most elemental part of humanity i find it most important to tell those stories of what we ate why we ate it why we cooked that food how it changed when people came to the us how the food changed i mean when i think about ben's chili bowl in washington dc mm-hmm. that's an urban politics story right. it it's it's a it's a gentrification story mm-hmm. the reason that, that Ben's Chili Bowl has been able to remain is because it owned the building. It was the only place that stayed open during the right. riots. Right. Um, it served so many people in the civil rights movement and continues to serve it now. And Virginia Ali is still alive and we mm-hmm. should give her her flowers for um, the work that she did feeding the civil rights um, movement. But it's also the story about politics and policy and, and how neighborhoods change and investment, disinvestment, all plays into whether or not we can feed ourselves in our own neighborhoods. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: Okay, we are back. Jamila, are you ready for question
2: number four? Question number four, come at me.
1: Okay. Inspired by the Black Power Movement in the United States, this British organization existed from 1968 through 1973. What was it called?
2: 1968. I'm going through all of my mental database of British trivia. It's gonna be something really easy because the Brits love simplicity. Mm-hmm. You're correct. Is it the free? Is it- you is, ready? Yeah, I'm ready.
1: It's the British Black Panther Party. <laughs> That's what it is. Nigerian playwright Obi Abuna founded the British Black Panthers, BBP, in 1968 in London's Notting Hill, and Britain people of Caribbean, African, or South Asian descent, were mainly immigrants from former British colonies were considered to be Black. So the tripling of Britain's Black population from 300,000 to 1 million people occurred from 1961 to 1964, which led to increased racial and class tensions, especially in London's Afro-Caribbean communities. And these tensions led to more police repression and the creation of the BBP. Now, while the BBP was not an official chapter of the Black Panthers, it was the first Panther organization outside of the United States, adopting the Panthers' symbols of military jackets, berets, and raised fists. And so they moved their headquarters to Brixton, which was a poor Black community in London at the time. Talk about gentrification, Brixton's pretty fancy right now. Um, And so like the Black Panther Party in the U.S., they stressed working class solidarity in addition to fighting racial discrimination and oppression. And so the long neglected BBP has been highlighted in 2017 in a photography exhibit at the Tate Museum. Again, Fantastic museum. A proposed film on the Mangrove Nine and an airing of *Guerrilla*, a new drama series loosely based on BBP. So, my producer told me that your family has roots in the Black Panther Party. And were you even aware of this British Black Panther Party? I
2: wasn't aware of the British Black Panther Party, and that's so fascinating because my mother was um, a leader in the Detroit Black Panther Party and um, and started the free breakfast program, um, which is why she wasn't cooking at home because she was running the program, right. And um, and you know, and it's not only a precursor um, for all of these other organizations, but also for our current um, free lunch program um, in the. US, um, that idea of of feeding communities. We have words for it now, food insecurity um, even throughout all of the gentrification and but those tenants from the Black Panther Party, of being sure that children have enough nutrition to sustain their education is still so vital as we face all of these other things from disinvestment to climate, all of those factors. So I think about that quite a bit in terms of how I, not only how I work, but it, it is a guiding point of um, of being sure that we aren't we are not only talking about food as entertainment but mm-hmm. as food as um as as a human right
1: mhm
2: mhm absolutely i mean i think about um
1: you know i i learned about this phrase food apartheid you know because someone was saying we use this term food deserts and it's like no a desert is is naturally occurring apartheid is deliberate and i think about the powerful work i mean it's revolutionary when you think about the program that your mother and so many other black black women specifically were running in the black panther party to feed the future of your nation and the idea that this country is not fully invested in providing a nourishing foundation from the beginning of a day like we see you know i'm going to be specific republican legislators fighting to defund the ability to nourish a child who obviously you know as an educator you know you can't concentrate if you're hungry period like and and that goes from itty bitties to college students and the number of college students who are who are food insecure, uh, the number of colleges who are starting food pantries to recognize that we can't have a future, political or otherwise, if we don't have this fountain, literally the fuel to keep us going.
2: I mean, we see in in Britain and in other parts of the world, Britain, France, you know, their school lunches are full of vegetables. They are everything is fresh. It's made from scratch. There has to be um, a way that we disconnect the profit making portion of food um, so that people understand that this it it should we should have free food in in every school um, if we. If so much of our tax burden is going into education, then that is something that I think people need to demand. Um, But we need the support of policymakers um, and agriculture. Again, all of this is, this all gets back to policy.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're playing the Blackest Questions with my new favorite person in the whole white world, Jamila Robinson. We'll be right back.
2: Okay, Jamila, we're
1: back. Are you ready for the last question in the Blackest Questions? I've learned so much. Last question. Okay, so question number five. A central figure in the Harlem Renaissance, this American sculptor worked with other leaders, writers, musicians, and artists to showcase the contributions of African American culture. Who was she?
2: Who was she? I'm going through my mental database of all the artists. And I can't think of her and I can't think of her name, but she was with because she had so many contemporaries. So I'm ready for the answer. Augusta Savage.
1: So the career of Augusta Savage was fostered by the climate of the Harlem Renaissance. And during the 1930s, she was a well-known Harlem sculptor, art teacher, and community art director. She arrived in New York with $4.60 and found a job as an apartment caretaker and enrolled at the Cooper Union School of Art, where she completed her four-year course in three years. And so when the Harlem Renaissance was at its peak in the mid-1920s, she lived and worked in a small studio apartment where she earned a reputation as a portrait sculptor, completing busts of prominent personalities such as W.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. And her best known work of the 1920s was Gamine, an informal bust portrait of her nephew, for which she was awarded a Julius Rosenwald Fellowship to study in Paris in 1929. She won it again in 1931, which permitted her to remain in Paris for an additional year. And she also received a Carnegie Foundation grant for eight months to travel France, Belgium, and Germany. And so your career has been pretty fascinating to me. And I know you're a very well-traveled food journalist. Can you tell us um, some of the best places you like to eat? Well,
2: well, I, I, I go savage, savage, love Paris. I love Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as as you were telling her story, I was just thinking about, gosh, we always hear about Josephine Baker, but we don't hear about all the other so women many. who went so to Paris. Many. So many black women went to Paris, um, and found the thing that I found in Paris, which is a path to freedom and really learning how to live in my Americanness by going to Paris. I love eating in Paris. I have my favorite restaurants in, in Paris, but I also love eating in Brazil. Um, mm-hmm. It's where I kind of had a culinary epiphany was in Brazil where I really learned about the other side of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm, you know, we mm-hmm. go to Senegal and the uh, you know, we go to these doors of no return, but there's another side of that that hasn't been erased in Brazil, um, in Bahia. And you see the castles where people arrived versus where they departed in that story of Brazil. So I love going to eat in Brazil and feeling that connection. Um, um, but, uh, but I, but I'm always going to love eating, eating in Paris.
1: So, and I, listen, I love eating in Paris. We'll put that on the list. <laughs> Maybe someone will give us a grant so we can talk about politics in Paris and food. So really quickly, before I let you out of here and before we play Black Lightning, what's the best part of finding the world's best, the world's 50 best restaurants?
2: Ha, huh. um, when you discover that the best part of finding some of the world's 50 best restaurants is, is finding that sense of place. Mm. And that change that the restaurants don't have to be French, Italian, and sometimes Japanese, that the chefs that I'm most excited about and the restaurants I'm most excited about are ones that are telling the story of their lives. One of my favorite restaurants is a Nigerian Chinese restaurant in Mm. London, Kali Koli. And it was two chefs who both wanted to open restaurants, friends, one wanted to open a Nigerian restaurant, the other wanted to open up a a Chinese restaurant. And so they said, well, what what if we came together and told the story of imperialism uh, through our dishes? So there is a smoked jollof rice on their menu that all you can say is, man, listen. there's a plant and steak, but they're doing more than just giving you delicious food. They're giving you a sense of place of where London is now and who mm-hmm. lives in London. Right. And um, the migration
1: and immigration stories of so many millions of people over time and, and place.
2: So many people. There's a restaurant called Central in Lima, Peru, that is focused on um, Mayan and Indigenous Cuisine and reclaiming all of those dishes from the seeds all the way to what they are um, to what they what you eat on the plate is never just the food It's never just the recipe there's a big story behind that that is. Um, about colonialism. It is about the, you know, losing that indigenous culture. And so when chefs are doing more than just cooking, they are giving you these ideas of where, what we need more of. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that makes me so excited when those are the kinds of restaurants. I mean, you know, I think there are a lot of restaurants that I get excited about when they are transformational when they are changing the way we think about food, the way we cook, the way our ideas around collaboration. Um, there are restaurants now that are doing that. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's, um, there's a rest, as I mentioned, ecoe is sort of my favorite restaurant on the list right now, but there are so many others that are in the, 51 to 100, Mm -hmm. um, that are changing the way that we are going to be experiencing restaurants for the next 10 years. And I'm most excited about that those chefs are from all over the world. They are Mm -hmm. from Dubai. They're from Peru. They're from Nigeria. They are from a a much bigger swath of the world. I used to say that, well, how can you be one of the 50 best, best restaurants if you exclude a huge portion of the planet. OK,
1: we're going to take a quick break, and then Jamila's going to play the Blackest
2: Questions lightning round.
1: OK, Jamila, we're back. So before I let you go, we've got time for just a quick bonus round. I like to call it Black Lightning. And this is just yes and no answers. This, boom, from the heart, OK? It's nice, quick, fast. You ready? Ready. Right. Best Michael Jackson album? Off the Wall. If you had to choose, Detroit or DC? Detroit. Where are the best chefs? Uh, Philadelphia.
2: How do you cook your rice? Like a totic, bottom of the pot, oil, um, turmeric,
1: saffron. Mm. Ooh, yes. Okay. You've mentioned The Wiz. We know that you love The Wiz. I'm going to ask you a few fun Wiz questions. Your favorite character from The Wiz? Scarecrow. Okay. If you had to choose, who would you be in The Wiz?
2: I'm going to be the lady who's like, I want to be seen green. I'm the dancer. Yes. <laughs> I'm like orchestrating the whole thing.
1: Um, okay. Were, yeah. Favorite song from the Wiz? Emerald City Sequence. Okay. Now we're going to shift back to some food. Do you prefer red or white wine? White. If you had to choose, your next trip would be to Rio or to Paris. Paris. And you told my producer that Philly has the best food and where are the best bakeries, though?
2: Ooh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna pick Chicago on that one. Okay, all right. So Jamila, one,
1: you gotta promise me you're gonna come back to the blackest question. I'm gonna come back. I wanna thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and also just your love of not food, not just food, but food culture and the politics and all the things that surround it. I don't think I will ever look at a restaurant the same way ever again. And I know that as we, you know, go into uh, a a series of transitions, we're we're all living in cities where we're seeing gentrification, sort of a, a new political environment in a lot of ways. And we know that there's a disinvestment in cities, which will change our culinary landscape. I just want to thank you so much for providing a foundation and some context us to have a deeper knowledge and, and also just for playing the blackest questions.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Greer. It's so, oh. fun. I can't wait to come back and yes, let's keep eating, keep living.
1: Yes, and I can't wait to try this lamb and these pot pies. So I want to thank you all for listening to The Blackest Questions. The show is produced by Sasha Armstrong, Akilah Shedrick, Jeffrey Trudeau, and Regina Griffin is our managing editor of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And please download the Grio app to listen and watch many more great shows.